Welcome back to Catechize, the podcast where we discuss the historic Reformed confessions and catechisms and, like today, other adjacent things. It has been 100 years since we've done an episode. I know. And it is good to be back. Yeah. John, say hello to the... Oh, I'm your host, Josh. With me, as always, is my co-host, St. John the Divine, patron saint of, uh, I don't know. Uh, probably being, just pals being a, again. Being a, good, being a good pal. <laughs> oh, thanks, Josh. Uh, but yeah, no, it it has it feels like it has been so long since we have recorded. But uh, kind of life just, has been a lot. Yeah, the craziness. Josh um, is raising a child. I am staggering through postgraduate life, um, in in a haze of confusion. Not not literally, but um, but yeah. So it's it's been a while, but it's it's definitely good to be back. And it's and today sounds like it's going to be a pretty interesting episode. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to attacking this topic <laughs> nice yeah um <laughs> it, it, this is a, a contra rome against roman catholicism episode footnotes and proof text so um every every time we wrap up a section of the catechism we do a handful of episodes one to three or four probably on the lower end this time of just yeah. adjacent topics that are uh, related to the most recent season uh but but bigger than maybe a, a segment of the of the regular podcast um, would be able to address. And because we just wrapped up with the sacraments, we are uh, today in in our Contra Rome episode four, we are discussing transubstantiation. Um, So it'll be, that'll be a fun time. Um, But yeah, I'll, I'll basically give the rundown of what we're going to do and then I'll pass the ball back to John and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move into kind of the bulk of our discussion. So, um, basically, oh yeah, um, we've done, uh, we've done three, uh, Contra Rome episodes. Um, I, I think we started with, um, Sola Scriptura because every yeah. debate with Roman Catholicism and Pro- between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism comes back down to that. And, and that actually mm-hmm. largely governs how we're going to do this episode. So, um, I'll let John talk about what transubstantiation is and stuff like that in a second. But um, the way we're going to do this episode is kind of briefly introduce the topic and, and kind of explain what transubstantiation is and, and how Rome views it and, and, and its significance and whatever, uh, and why we're doing it following an episode or a season rather on the sacraments. Uh, and then we're just basically going to spend a lot of time in John 6. And there's kind of a couple of reasons for that. Um, one to engage on the debate of is transubstantiation legitimate or not? Um, is it biblical? Is it historical? Is it Christian? Whatever. Um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the the realities of that debate actually just trail back to sola scriptura. Um, that that a lot of the debate about around, around the legitimacy or illegitimacy of transubstantiation has to do with its history. How long has this been the view of the church, the Catholic Church, um, and uh, on, on what grounds has this view been adopted, embraced, taught, perpetuated, whatever? Uh, and a lot of those things come down to well, if you hold to sola scriptura, then uh, then then it then it doesn't matter that such and such papal encyclical or council affirmed this doctrine it's not found in scripture um and it is beneficial to see what i would say is that is that transubstantiation is not defensible as the historic view that this is clearly not what was believed from the first century through to now Mm -hmm. as rome may have you believe um but but that's um but but that's kind of an adjacent uh, issue is this historical and so what we want to do uh is go to john 6 which is essentially the passage. Um, yeah, if the transubstantiation, passage. yeah, if transubstantiation is biblical, um, then it is taught in John six. Um, and so, because we don't want to return to this sola scriptura debate, we've already done an episode on. That. You can check it out um, yeah. from earlier. Um, but, but so the, the if so then if we're gonna try and avoid the sola scriptura debate because it's one that kind of gets rehashed a ton, and we don't want to tr- retread ground. Um, then, then the question that we want to focus on is, is, is transubstantiation biblical or not? And to address that, you spend time in John 6. Uh, because if John 6 means what Rome interprets it to mean, then transubstantiation is biblical. Um, but 
uh, we're going to seek to show you not just that John 6 does not teach transubstantiation, um, but we, we, we think that the best way to show you that it does not teach transubstantiation is to show you what it does teach. And, and mm-hmm. so we will, we're going to walk through a chunk of the chapter um, and, and pause at notable points to highlight this is how a Roman Catholic would take this piece of the passage. Um, here's why that is not exegetically legitimate. Here's what John seems to be saying. Uh, and, and, and therefore, hopefully by the end of this, what we'll have done is shown, shown you all that John 6 teaches one thing. And because it teaches that, it clearly is not teaching transubstantiation. Therefore, mm-hmm. transubstantiation is not biblical. Um, so before we get into John six, John, can you give us a little bit of like background? What is sure. this thing? Uh, why is it relevant to our current conversation? Yeah, um, of course. And, and, and other thoughts. Yeah. So I think, I think the, the launching point and purpose we're doing this episode now is actually, um, looking back at question, uh, 96, which is what is the Lord's supper? And in that question, um, partway through it says, and the worthy receivers are, not after a corporeal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood. And so this clause of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is actually essentially directly addressing um, transubstantiation, and that's part of the reason we're we're talking about it. Um, So what it's basically saying is that um, the catechism is arguing that we're not receiving um, the body and blood in like a physical, literal sense, but we're receiving it by faith spiritually. And this comes down to kind of what the center of transubstantiation is. So essentially what this view is, this is the the view held by the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church that, um, that whenever you partake of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the, the priest essentially, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, Josh? He, what's the elements? consecrates consecrates is that it yeah that's what i was looking for the priest consecrates the elements um and in doing that the priest essentially um it's not like he does this like some sort of magic trick of his own but the the elements are changed from being just bread and just wine to being the literal body and blood of christ now roman catholics generally appeal to um, what is, I believe, an Aristotelian distinction where they say, um, well, the substance, um, they, they do this distinction between substance and accidents, where basically even though the, um, it looks and has the same sort of exterior taste, all of that that is the exact same as bread and the exact same as wine, in terms of its deeper substance, so it's it's external unimportant things like taste and um, appearance and all that continues to look like bread, but in its substance, it is changed into the literal body and blood of Christ. And so this is central to what they believe the Eucharist is. And if you reject this, um, it is, it is considered a, a, a huge sin essentially by rejecting this, um, Josh, I think we've talked about kind of the different sins. There's sort of like, was it mortal and venial? Oh, um, in the Roman Catholic system, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. So mortal it, and venial sins, uh, yes. That's the distinction. Mortal, yeah. basically, just to give a background for people who who, who yeah, yeah. are like, what the heck is that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, in Roman Catholicism, salvation uh, exists in an understanding of an individual being or not being in a state of grace. Um, and, and when an infant is baptized, their original sin is washed away and they are placed in the state of grace in which they continue by faith and participation or cooperation with grace through the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Um, mortal sins uh, uh, cause one to fall away from that state of grace, whereas venial sins need to be uh, uh Penance needs to be made for venial sins, Mm -hmm. but one guilty of a venial sin is still in a state of grace. Um, If you die, if you die guilty of a venial sin, that venial sin will be purged in purgatory. If you die with an undealt with mortal sin, you'll be damned because you have fallen from the state of grace. Yeah. And essentially rejecting transubstantiation is considered a mortal sin. Um, Just, just for the sake of fairly representing Rome. Um, a lot, I've been told by a lot of Roman Catholics that there's not a list of mortal sins. 
Okay. Uh, and, and so while like, like, like things are, are likely or certainly, or that would be yeah. in this sense, um, they wouldn't, there's not like a formal list of mortal sins on yeah. which rejection of transubstantiation exists. Yeah. But I think it would fall in, in, uh, in the anathemas, I believe from yeah. Rome, which then they've been reinterpreted by people. Basically there's a diversity of interpretation and opinions in Roman Catholicism, contrary to kind of how they try and represent the universality of their system. Um, yeah. But the severity of, of denying transubstantiation is, is there in the formal teaching of Rome. Yeah. That's just, what I was trying to get just at. in some form. It's, it's bad to reject it. Now, just, before we jump into the passage, I think it's helpful. First of all, um, the impact this has on the, because um, I think I think people today can sometimes approach this and be like, "Who gives? Who cares? Back? Like, yeah, why does this matter? Why are people arguing about this?" But it actually changes a lot of how you approach the service. For example, in the Roman Catholic service, the the Eucharist is the center of the service. It is the most important part. Whereas in a reformed service, for example, the the preaching, reading, the reading and preaching of the word is considered um, sort of the center of the service. Um, it also impacts how you approach um, the table. So the the reformed Christian and the reformers themselves argued that basically what's happening in transubstantiation is this bread and this wine is being made into an idol. We are we are like worshiping a substance. Um, and, um, yeah, go ahead, Josh. I was just going to say, like, like if transubstantiation is true, yes, then every Protestant is guilty of irreverence, uh, to the host because the host, the bread and the wine is literally Jesus. It's yeah. his literal body. It's his literal blood. And we are treating it with irreverence mm, or a lack yeah. of honor or whatever. Um, but if transubstantiation is not true, then every Roman Catholic is guilty of idolatry because the, the reason that they bow uh, um, yeah, kneel. in large part, not just kneel when they take the, the Eucharist, but when they bow and they cross over the middle is yeah. because there's a tabernacle in the back of the altar up in the front of the church um, it, it, in which the, the consecrated body and blood of Christ is stored. And they bow to that because we should bow before Christ. Um, and they think that bread and that wine is Christ. Yes. Uh, but, but so if transubstantiation is true, then then Protestants are guilty of irreverence or or dishonoring God. But if yeah. transubstantiation is not true, then Roman Catholics are guilty of idolatry uh, as they bow down before what is mere bread and mere wine. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to summarize it, actually. Nicely, nicely put, Josh. Um, but thanks. Um, but yeah, so essentially in this whirlwind tour of transubstantiation, that's that's basically the idea. That's part of the reason why it is so contested. Quickly, just referencing the reformers, basically the reason they pushed against this is because they did not feel as if it was um, could be defended from Scripture. It seemed like some uh, kind of a imposition of tradition upon Scripture, kind of pushing it in there. Um and yeah, so we we won't hash that all out. And we talked about some of this on our um, on our episode when we handled that that question of the catechism. So we don't need to hash it out entirely. But basically, um, the reform position is that the body um, in the bread and wine, the the body and blood of Christ are spiritually present and received by faith. Um, and you can go listen to that episode to kind of get that in more detail. Yeah. But yeah, I think that gives us. Is that a sufficient background? Anything I missed that we need? To I think read? no. I think that's a sufficient background. I'm going to read one quote from a Catholic priest that was brought to my attention in a debate between James White and another Roman Catholic. I think mm. uh, shoot, what's his name? Mitch Pacwa um, on the priesthood, and then give a little intro, and then we'll go. But this, sure. I think, this quote captures um, the. Uh, the, the significance of the idea of transubstantiation to the Roman Catholic uh, and therefore elevates our understanding of why this conversation matters. So yeah. John O'Brien in his book, The Faith of Millions, writes, 
When a priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places upon our altar to be offered again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a greater it is a power greater than that of monarchs and emperors. It is greater than that of saints and angels. It is greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater than that even of the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, vows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Mm. Rough. Um, uh, <laughs> let's not let's not beat around the bush or be shy here. That is just awful um and, and so the understanding of the priesthood we, we yeah whatever the understanding of the priesthood uh of what they do in the sacraments particularly in the lord's supper um it it, it really summarizes or d- depicts or embodies or presents the some some very significant differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism particularly the reformed faith mm. um and so understanding uh, transubstantiation is significant because again, if transubstantiation is true, then that quote is accurate. Then mm. the priest brings Christ down out of heaven and Christ is offered not as the once for all sacrifice for sins, but as the eternal, uh, sacrifice for sins. Yeah. Um, uh, as the, sorry, the eternal victim to use the quote yeah. specifically. Um, and, and, uh, and so wrapped up in the debate of transubstantiation is the, the reality of the completed work of Christ, the necessity of a priest or the priesthood, um, the nature of the grace bestowed in the sacraments, mm-hmm. uh, the, the reality or the legitimacy of reverence of the host. Um, uh, and the, yeah, the, so, so getting transubstantiation right matters. Um, and so, so let's go to John six to try and get it right. Um, Mm. now I said at the beginning that John six is the passage. Of course, it's not at all the only passage that a Roman Catholic would go to, um, any place in the gospels or, or in first Corinthians where Paul quotes Christ and in the institution of the Lord's supper and says, this is my body or in first Corinthians, um, anyone who is guilty is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. They would say, yeah. see, this is, Jesus says, this is my body. And that was actually not just a Roman Catholic concern, but but Luther carved that into a table famously or legendarily again yeah. when he was discussing the communion with... Um, Zwingli. Uh, with Zwingli, yeah, Zwingli. Um, Zwingli. My shirt's been inside out all day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. Anyway, sorry. Um, but but yeah, so like th- does when Christ in, in the institution of the Lord's Supper says, this is my body. And when Paul says, when the, the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took the cup and took the wine and said, this is my body, this is broken, my yeah. blood shed. And anyone guilty of this is guilty of the, the body and blood of the Lord. Are, do they mean that in the literal sense that that is Jesus' body physically, um, or do they mean it in another sense? Um, and and the reason that we're focusing on John six is because I think John six uh, get, understanding John six um, helps us to know or or reinforces uh, an interpretation of those other passages um, yeah. that in fact when Jesus says this is my body, he is not saying that in in, in a literal sense. Uh, in a physical sense, uh, any more than uh, than when he says, "I am the door" or "I am the vine." He's not literally a vine; he's not literally a door. Yeah. Um, when he is sitting with the the apostles, the disciples around the table, the Last Supper, and he says, "This is my body." He, his body is there. Uh, yeah. He's physically present with them. That that's bread and that's wine. And so yeah. that the. the our interpretation that when Christ says, this is my body. And then when Paul says people guilty of the Lord's supper to their Lord's supper improperly are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. They are, they are not meaning that in a physical sense. And that claim is supported, I think by, um, by a, a, an accurate, what I would argue is an accurate understanding of John six. So without further ado, John six, quick background, John six opens with the feeding of the 5,000. Um, so Jesus feeds the 5,000 and, um, uh, it's around the Passover and then it, it's a great old time. And then, then, 
the disciples go across um uh which sea was it was it galilee we look here uh i can't recall what while you look that up one quick fun fact as the uh feeding of the 5000 is one of the um just few or the handful of things that is found in all four gospels oh, yeah. um, which is which is kind of a fun little tidbit cuz a lot of times you'll see even like very famous parables and stuff like that are maybe in like two um, gospels. There's a lot of things that are, there's very few things that are in all four and the feeding yeah. of 5,000 is. So, so yeah. it's a, it's a pretty important event right? Um, based on the fact that everyone yeah. mentions it. Right. And it's an important background actually to the discourse that Jesus has. That we're going to yeah. focus on the bread of life discourse. It is yep. the sea of Galilee. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 uh, and then the disciples uh, uh, leave and go across and Jesus walks on water to with them. This is the walk on water story following um, the the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to start reading in verse 22, which is the kind of beginning of the bread of life discourse. Um, And we'll go to, to, to nearly the end of the the chapter. It's a big chunk. We won't um, uh, other people, James White and Roman Catholic in response to him have done extensive videos on John six. You, you can find anything on the internet. Um, <laughs> and and, and yeah. so we're, we're going to give more detail than some of those and not as much as others, but yeah. hopefully a, a helpful and, and, and like palatable amount. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So the feeding of the 5,000 has just happened. Jesus has just miraculously given food to 5,000 of his followers. Um, and, and then he has walked on water. One quick aside, one thing that is going on in John and the way that John has written his gospel um, with, and he tells us his thesis, his main point at the end, that that he is writing that you might believe, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things John does in his gospel is he juxtaposes, holds holds against one another true and false faith. Um, and, and one of the ways, or sometimes the way that he does that is grammatically. Uh, and, and so... There are, there are ways in Greek to have a verb be final or completed or perfected. And then there are word, verbs, verb forms in Greek that, that are continuing. Um, and one of the ways that John holds true faith against false faith is by, by using um, a completed verb or an ongoing verb. And we'll mention, I just wanted to yeah. give that background. Because yeah, we'll mention good. that when we, when we pick things apart in a second. So John 6, starting verse 22. Here we go. Let's do it. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Uh, Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Uh, So we have people who have who have tasted and eaten and, and been uh, experienced the miraculous feeding of from Christ, uh, mm-hmm. and then they they go seeking Jesus. They're yeah. seeking him, um, and then when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, "Rabbi, when did you come here?" And Jesus answered them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs." Uh, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, mm. do you, uh, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Real quick there. Um, so so again, we see John juxtaposing true and false faith, true and false seeking of Jesus. Uh, so these people seek Jesus, but He tells them right here to their face. Also, at that one of the things that is noted in this passage is that near the end a large chunk of disciples leave jesus they they're like we can't follow this is a hard saying we're gonna leave yeah um and roman catholics will often say you people don't like transubstantiation they don't like the idea that you're that one you're literally eating jesus body and literally drinking his blood that's off-putting to people and also they don't like that this miraculous thing like people uh, have a tendency to reject the miraculous. And so they're yeah. saying that's why people departed. Uh, and so that one of our questions is, are people going to leave Jesus in John 6 because he teaches transubstantiation and they don't like that? Or do they leave for another reason? And I think here we see the beginning of the reason they leave. Jesus yeah. is calling out to their false faith. They're seeking him, but he's like, you don't want me. You just like the stuff that comes from me when I do miraculous things. Yeah, he... He basically feeds them, you know, with the feeding of the 5,000. You can imagine a lot of these people who are perhaps poor, hungry, don't get food very often, and suddenly they're just eating this this bottomless feast. 
of of food and or or something to that effect and and they're like oh this guy is can just make food appear all right we'll follow him and and jesus is immediately calling them out and he's like you're not you're not following me out of desire to follow me you're following me because you ate your fill of the loaves and seemingly you want more so right, yeah, I, exactly. I think that's a great a great starting point and a great an important and helpful background. Yeah, sweet yeah. deal. Um, and so they respond to Jesus. They say, "Then they said to him, um, what was what must we do uh, to be doing the works of God?'" So, so just why they say the works of God? So going back again to where we just ended, from verse twenty seven to twenty nine, um, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Um, so, so. Jesus tells them not to work for food that perishes, but do work for, for food that endures to eternal life. And so they're asking him, what is this? What, what kind of work does endure to eternal life? Yeah. Um, what is, again, verse 29 um, or verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, uh, that you believe in him who he sent. So, so right away, this is another kind of contention between Rome and, and, and the Reformed. Um, what do we cooperate and participate in the grace of God, uh, or or is God's saving grace a work of God alone? Um, what is the relationship of faith and works? Uh, and Jesus says, "The works of God are to believe in the one sent, yeah. to believe in me." Uh, and so, so, so Jesus is saying. Working is not it, but believing is. Believing is the work, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and 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 so I think that's that's an important distinction to make. Yeah. To, but but Agreed. not one to linger on. Um, so again, that you believe in Him who He has sent. Verse thirty. So they said to Him, uh, "Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna from the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat." Um, quick pause there. First of all, in this sense, that's a fair question, kind of. What they're asking is, yeah. if you're saying that you're the one that God sent, then then prove that you are who you say you are so that we might believe in you. Because you say the thing we have to do is believe in the one sent by God. Simply please then prove to us that you've been sent by God so that we follow you, so that we know that you are the one that we're supposed to be believing in. Um, that's kind of accurate because, you know, you don't want to be going off following yeah. a false teacher but literally they just ate food <laughs> from one dude's lunch what do you mean what miracle what sign what yeah. work do you perform uh yesterday you followed him because he did a miracle to feed you how what do you mean you need a science for especially if they go on to cite our fathers ate manna in the wilderness yeah and you just ate a miraculous meal in the wilderness too <laughs> how are you not connecting these dots uh, but I guess Jesus often voices frustration uh, with with the Jews in John's gospel. How do you not know this? Nicodemus, yeah. you're a teacher of the law. Um, and, and so, yeah, that part always bothers me. What do you mean? Yeah, then, he just fed you miraculously. What sign do you? Gosh, I, you stubborn people. It Yeah, it definitely reminds me of, I think, like I said, Hebrews 4, 3 and 4, where it talks about the the Israelites in the wilderness and how God did these things for them. And they were like, yeah, never mind. We don't care. Right. About right. You. Like, <laughs> right. Well, and it, and it sets up Jesus refutation and condemnation of them that follows in a second here. So, yeah. so, so pay attention here. Cause what just happened is that Jesus says the works of God endure, you do the works of God that deter, do that endure to eternal life. Namely believe in the one God has sent referring to himself. And they're yeah. like, after just feeding them miraculously. And they're like, yeah, but like, what sign are you going to do to prove that you're from God? Give me another sign. Right, right. Yeah. And so they um, they do not believe, and I'm setting this up because Jesus explains why, but they do not believe that Jesus is the one sent from God, even though they are seeking him because of the miracles that he does. They yeah. don't believe that he is sent from God. Uh, and Jesus tells them why they don't believe that in a little bit, which is actually why they leave, to spoil the, the yeah. to give you the end here. But anyways, verse 32. Uh, Jesus then said, uh, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the, you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So really quickly here, 
Jesus identifies himself with the bread from heaven. Um, yeah. So he is both from heaven and the one that gives life to the world. He is saying the bread of life, if you will. He is, or or the true manna, uh, the yeah. the fulfillment of the type and shadow uh, seen in the wilderness with Moses. He's yeah. saying so. He's literally just said that the true bread, uh, that 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 uh, the true bread from heaven is not bread. It's me. I yeah. am the true bread, and so the true bread is not physical bread. It's Jesus. Uh, he is the true bread from heaven who has come down to give life to the world. Yeah. And they say, sir, give us this bread always. Clearly still not quite clicking because he's <laughs> just said it's me. And they're like, okay, give us the bread. So there's a little, there's clearly a disconnect between Jesus and his audience. Yeah. Um, you, you sort of get this impression that these people are very sort of concerned with physical bread at this point. They're kind of, they're not, they're not sort of <laughs> rolling with Jesus's kind of the imagery or typology or any of that that he's using they're just thinking i want bread uh give me some of this bread um so and and less the confusion remain after jesus says the bread of god is he who comes down from heaven and and gives life to the world um jesus says in response to their request give us this bread always jesus said to them verse 35 i am the bread of life Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Um, and, and so really quickly here, again, so he's like, the bread isn't bread, it's me. And the way that hunger and thirst are satiated is by uh, uh, coming to me and believing in me. Come to me and believe in me and your hunger and thirst will be satiated. You'll be satisfied. Uh, I give life. I am the bread. It's not bread. Uh, it's me. And and the the way that you get the way that you receive life from me is by coming to me in faith by coming and believing and again that true faith false faith just just juxtaposition the coming to me and believing in me is that present active participle that's a continuing action same from john 3 16 that that all the believing ones shall not perish but have eternal life uh and here it's all the all the ones coming and all the ones believing uh, will not hunger or yeah. thirst. Yeah. And yeah. so just to, sorry, I had to grab my little charger here. No, you're good. Um, uh, so just to, to clarify what Jesus has said so far, do the works of God that endure to eternal life. Those works are believing in the one sent by God. I am the bread from heaven. Uh, I, I am the bread of life. And and and, uh, and come and be- come to me and believe in me. Uh, and you will not hunger and not thirst. Your hunger yeah. and your thirst is satisfied by coming to Jesus and believing in him because he is the true bread. Continue in verse 36. Uh, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Again, these are people who are seeking Jesus and Jesus tells them to their face, you don't believe. Um, All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For mm-hmm. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but uh, raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Yeah. Uh, and so so there's a couple things going on here in Jesus' teaching. Um, uh, Jesus, after saying that he, the true bread, uh, gives life and, and, and those who get life from him are those who are the ones who come to him, the ones who believe in him, um, continually, uh, Jesus said, you aren't that you don't believe. Um, and, and then he summarizes his work. What is he here to do? He's here to do the father's will. The father's will, um, is that, that Jesus raise up on the last day, all that come to him. Uh, and, and, and so what is Jesus doing? Uh, all, all that the father, uh, sorry, all that the father, uh, gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, he'll never cast out. Uh, and he's never going to cast them out because he came to do his father's will, which is, yeah. uh, to keep all that, ha- that have been given to him by the father. And so Jesus is identifying a group here. There are people who are given to him by the father. It's for those people that Jesus came and Jesus will not cast out any of them. And every single person who the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. Jesus has just said 
that he is the true bread and that those who come to him will never be hungry um, and who believe in him will never thirst. And he says that everyone who the father gave him will come and everyone who comes will be raised. Uh, and, And that's, He's going to do that because he came to do the father's will and that's the father's will. And so there is and I think, this. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. There's this, there's this one group, a group of people who are coming, they're believing they're given by the father to the son. They will come to the son. They will be raised in the last day. Uh, there, mm. that is one group. And all of those things are true of that one group. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to add, this also actually ties back into what we were saying. So the people came to him looking for, um, people came to him looking for bread, and he basically calls them out on not believing in him, but only wanting him for sort of what he offers. And this sort of ties into that, I think, because what what he's saying here is basically like, you guys have seen me, and yet you don't believe. You just want what I, you want my, what I can give you. Um, and the emphasis, I think one of the main emphases in this past, in this little chunk here, um, as you mentioned, Josh is believing. And he talks at several points about encouraging them to believe, um, everyone who looks upon the sun, um, and believes in him should have eternal life. So he's, it's very, <laughs> it's very like John three sixteen ish in that regard. Um, or you, I guess you could just say it's very John like, Johannine. Um, Johannine um, to emphasize, he's emphasizing believing here and the fact that these people are not believing, they're simply doing what they can. They're trying to get things out of him. Um, that might be kind of a harsh way to put it, but that's sort of the idea here. And so he's he's emphasizing that as well as emphasizing his purpose and mission, which is being sent by the Father um, and to basically save those the Father has sent him to save. Right. Yeah. Um, so then continuing on, and again, Jesus will do a thing where he'll, where, where he'll say a thing, they won't get it. And he'll say it with like, again, he'll repeat it again with, with like undeniable clarity. Like he just said above the bread of, of God is he who has come down from heaven. And, and then he goes, I am the bread. And then yeah. he, and then <laughs> he talks about how he's coming, coming to save those who come to him, who believe in him, who will never hunger, who will yeah. never thirst, who've been given by the Father, and so on. And then verse 41, the Jews respond. Uh, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. So they don't like that. They don't like Jesus saying that he's from heaven. Yeah. Uh, and then they said, verse 42, uh, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, that's verse 44. And this is where Jesus restates with abundant clarity what he stated earlier uh, in verses 35 through 40. Jesus has said, I'm the bread from heaven. The one coming will not hunger. The one believing will not thirst. So hunger and thirst are satiated by coming to Christ and believing. Yeah. And what does he come to do? The will of the Father. Um, everyone who the Father has given to him will come to him. All who come to him, uh, Jesus will raise on the last day. Uh, and they don't like that he says he's from heaven. And then he, his response to that is uh, is to, to make clear, right? So he's saying, you don't believe uh, to, 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 to receive the bread of heaven. Come and be, come and no longer be hungry. Uh, believe and no longer thirst. You do not believe. And then he tells them in a kind of less clear way why they don't believe. You're not coming to him, but everyone who the father has given to the son will come to him. Yeah. And then he says that with abundant clarity in verse 44. No one can, no one is able to come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus states what he implies above. He says, if you, if you, if you want your hunger and thirst to be satisfied, you come and believe you aren't that, but everyone who the father has given to me will come. And so he's saying, you're not coming because you haven't been given by the father. And here he explicitly says, you cannot, you cannot come to me unless the father has, unless the father draws you himself. Um, And so he's, he's, calling out their unbelief and explaining it. And then he goes on in verse 45. Um, it is written in the prophets. 
uh, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Um, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one uh, may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. So here Jesus is, explains a couple things. One, if you if you do eat this bread, and again, what what, what how how is how is Jesus, who is the bread of life? How does he satisfy hunger and thirst? By to those who come and believe. It is by coming in belief that yeah. hunger and thirst are satisfied. And so uh, and so it is uh, those who, who eat this bread never die. So that's one promise that Jesus makes. Uh, and this is a point that I'm going to borrow from James White. He, he, he likes to point out that if this passage is about uh, transubstantiation, then Jesus is 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 inaccurate, dishonest, incorrect, or something that is that, that is not allowable. Mm. Because Jesus promises that anyone who, who eats this bread um, will, will live forever. But there are countless Roman Catholics, even by Roman Catholic mm. admission, who eat the Eucharist and perish, who die, who are damned. Uh, and, and so um, if, if you are saying that Jesus is teaching that you have to eat his flesh and blood in the Eucharist, um, then how can Jesus say that, that anyone who does do that will not die when you know full well and you admit full well that people who take the Eucharist, who partake of the literal body and blood of Christ, uh, do die. But Jesus promises that those who eat won't. Uh, and then he, he explains how, um, uh, how he is giving his, the, the, the bread, so I'll just read it rather than convolute it. Uh, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so he's explaining even the nature of the giving of himself as the bread, which is him sacrificing himself. Go ahead, John, and then we'll pick up in verse 52. Yep, sounds good. Basically, I was just going to point, um, so he talks about eternal life here at a couple points. In f- verse 47, he talks about, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then, um, moving further down in the passage, um, we just talked about more where he says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Um, it seems like he is kind of, it seems like he's, you could see a parallel there where it doesn't seem like he is talking about two separate things. Like it doesn't seem like he is referring to, well, you believe and get eternal life. Also, you, you have to eat, in order to get eternal life and they're separate things. There's a sense in which he's kind of referring to the same thing. One in a, like a really blatant sense and one in a using the imagery he's been working through ever since the uh, kind of the topic of the feeding of the 5,000 came up where he's just using this bread illustration um, or imagery. So I think, I think that that's just helpful for me to see that, that, Believing continues to work itself throughout this whole this whole um, passage. All right, so so yeah, what you're what you're saying, I think, is that John is putting in parallel coming and believing with yes. eating and drinking. So so that when he's because he's speaking in metaphor and representative language, that he is the bread. Eat and drink the bread, and and you will not die. You'll have eternal life. Um, well, he has told us earlier what eating and drinking are. How is it that the bread satisfies? It is through coming yeah. and believing. And, and so the language of eating and drinking is continuing the instruction mm-hmm. to come and believe because those verbs, because he has told us earlier, how, what is eating? What is drinking? It's yeah. coming. And, and uh, now I think we're getting into the, the spiciest bit of the passage here. I think so. Or at least the the, the more, re- I don't know, not more relevant, but kind of more, whatever. Verse 52. Uh, then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the blood, the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So um, I think that the key to this, in addition to what we just said, that, that Jesus has told us earlier in the passage what eating and drinking are. Eating and drinking are done by coming and believing. But not only that, um, but but clearly the Jews are are under the perception that eating and drinking in, is is a literal physical thing that involves literal physical bread and drink. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus corrects them. And, and so it seems to me that an argument in favor of transubstantiation is an argument that's in agreement with the Jews that think Jesus is talking about literal physical yeah. eating and drinking. Um, whereas Jesus corrects that notion uh, and, 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 and talks about himself as true food and drink. Um, and how do we partake of the true food and true drink that is Christ by coming and believing according to verse 35. And, and so we are missing the point of John 6 if we agree with the Jews who don't understand what Jesus is saying. And I would argue that a transubstantiation understanding of the passage is an agreement with the Jews that is taking Jesus' instruction in a physical sense um, uh, rather than coming and believing yeah. a spiritual thing. Uh, a thing that is, is, is again, the sacraments are made effectual by faith. How do we feast on Christ? By believing. Faith. Same word. Um, yeah, I, so, yeah. I, I've seen, I've seen um, Roman Catholics argue basically that, okay, so Jesus makes this argument, and then, um, and then in verse 52, the Jews um, say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then they say, well, then Jesus doubles down. He doesn't clarify. He doesn't say, no, no, you misunderstand me. I'm not talking about my literal flesh. Um, he he doesn't correct them in their misunderstanding is, is what the Roman Catholic argues. But first of all, as we've said, when we understand what um, kind of eating and drinking is throughout the rest of the passage, it is clear that it's not referring to a literal thing. Um, so he's basically, like like Josh said, you'd have to be agreeing uh, like Jesus would basically have to be agreeing with them and saying like, yep, you got that um, in order for that position, in order for, in order for it to be talking about transubstantiation. But the second thing is I think um, Jesus, um, one of the things that I thought was helpful when I was thinking about, or when I was reading about this was Jesus doesn't just always correct people when they do not understand him. Uh, so take, for example, when he says, when he's talking about the, when he's talking, he's at the temple and says something to the effect of tear down this, I'll tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're like, you can't rebuild this in three days. Um, and then in sort of like a, a parenthesis. Yeah. The author's okay, like, they didn't realize he was talking about his, his body. Uh, and, um, but Jesus never bothers to tell them, ah, no, 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 guys, you misunderstand me. I'm talking about my body, which is the uh, temple, you know, like he doesn't, he doesn't do anything like that. And I think that's similar here. He is not, he is not aiming to, um, kind of plead with these unbelievers, um, in this. Yeah. yeah go ahead, Josh. And I was just gonna say, and, and it's important, I think to notice even, so that's a great example yeah. the, the temple one, but even in the immediate context in the passage in verses we've already read, that's not how Jesus addresses yeah. misunderstanding. So, so they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then he goes on to say, I'm true food, I'm true drink, eat and drink me and have eternal life. He, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say you got it wrong. But earlier, they say, they grumble because that he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And Jesus says, don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. He doesn't address their complaint. He doesn't address their concern. They said, how can he say that he came down from heaven? We know his mom and dad. And he's like, don't grumble. You can't come to me unless the father draws you. He, he, so he, in this passage, he hasn't been addressing their confusion and their error by directly refuting their confusion and their error, but by reiterating what he yeah. is saying. Uh, and, and so 
we would not expect Jesus in this passage to address the error of thinking that Jesus is talking about a physical eating and yeah. physical drinking by saying, no, 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 I mean a spiritual thing. We would expect him to do exactly what he does, which is keep saying what he is saying. I'm true bread. I am true drink. Come eat and drink, believe, and and, and, and you will have life in me. Um, and, and so it, 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 it would not make sense to correct the Jews in the way that Rome would demand that they be corrected if transubstantiation yeah. were incorrect. Um, because that's not how Jesus has been interacting yeah. with the Jews in this I, passage. Yes. Does that make yeah, sense? I Am I making sense? sense? Um, I think one kind of additional point to be made here is just, and this is a broader one, and it's just that you're you're importing a, a whole ton of context when you assume this passage is talking about transubstantiation. Doing that actually, it like Jesus is talking to these people who would have absolutely no idea about the Lord's Supper at all, much less about um, transubstantiation. And so when we read that into the explanation, it makes it even like it's just one of those things where it would make absolutely no sense to its original hearers um, in a way that I think. Um, yeah, I just don't think that that's a super helpful way to read scripture passages where we we decide what we want it to be talking about and then read that into it. Right. Cool. And then uh, to to go to the last couple paragraphs of the chapter uh, in verse sixty, um, when many of his disciples heard that heard it, they said, "This is a hard saying. Mm-hmm. Who can listen to it?" But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what, uh, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Uh, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there is some, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was uh, that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So again, he recognizes the issue uh, that, that they cannot come to him unless the Father yeah. draws them, unless the Father gives them. Um, uh, and, and and Jesus, again, addresses their difficulty. Uh, and then in the, bell, in the last chunk, 66 through um, 71, after this, many of his, his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, uh, one of the twelve, was oh. going to betray him. And so here we see again Jesus knowing uh, who is his, knowing who are, who are believing. Jesus knew who would walk away. Jesus knew who would betray him. Jesus yeah. knows all these things. Uh, and yet they are called by him. They are called as disciples. Uh, but the ones who are truly his are those who are given to him by the Father. And in this passage, we see Jesus stating, uh, making his identity clear. Who is he? He is the one from God who gives life to the world, uh, which he phrases often in this passage as, as being the bread of life. He gives life uh, by those who feed on him true food and drink his blood true drink. What is that? It's coming to him and believing in him. Well, how, why is it that all these people who have been seeking him, who are called his disciples, don't believe? Because Jesus says they don't believe. Well, why is it? Because um, no one is able to come to him unless the Father draws him, unless the Father grants it so. Uh, But everyone who the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. They will be be satiated by that true food, and Jesus will definitively raise them up on the last day. Uh, that is the hard saying uh, that the Jews didn't like. The Jews did not like their unbelief being confronted, and Jesus cha- and Jesus telling them that the nature of their unbelief um, was that they cannot come unless the Father grants yeah. it. They're unable, uh, and and these hard sayings drive the the ones who do not have and, true faith. And I away. think one just to go back just a. T- just a couple verses back to verse 63. I think this verse um, 
I think this could have some bearing on the conversation as well. It says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Um, I I know, I, I've from what I've read, there's a decent amount of Roman Catholics who are, who kind of oppose particularly this verse and its interpretation, because I think in some ways it's sort of insinuating or pointing at what we have been saying this whole time, that the passage, when it's talking about... Um, it's not talking about literal fleshly consumption. It's not talking about fleshly things so much as it is talking about spiritual things. And at at the center of what Jesus is talking about is not um, getting, you know, free bread that'll keep you alive physically, but it is much more talking about being fed and, and um, watered spiritually and growing in that way. Um, in Christ and feeding upon Christ in that way. And so that seems to me to be um, a helpful verse to kind of take note of as well. Yeah, that's well, well identified, I think. So, well, sweet. Well, that was John six. Thanks for, uh, thanks for pushing through. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so again, the goal is see what John six is actually about and, and, and therefore see that it is not teaching transubstantiation. Um, and, and so I think, uh, hopefully, um, clearly, John, John 6 is Jesus is talking about the nature of true belief, um, the, the promises uh, from him that he will raise up everyone who comes to him, and everyone who the Father gives to him will come to him and therefore be raised. And, and those who do not come to him do not come because the Father has not, because they can't apart from the Father enabling mm-hmm. them to. Um, and... Uh, uh, and, and Jesus teaches all of this through the, the bread of life discourse, that he is the one who gives life. Just as manna gave temporary life in, in the wilderness, um, he is the true bread, the yeah. true manna. Uh, and he gives true and lasting and eternal life to those who come to him, who are given by the Father, who will be raised up on the last day. Yeah. Um, and, and and we over uh over actualize the metaphor over actualize the the comparison the figure the the, the the figurative language the instructive language the didactic language when we take it to mean that that when jesus then later says this is my body this is my blood um uh that that we that that, that the act of participating in uh the, the the eucharist or communion or the lord's supper is an act of feasting on his physical yeah. flesh and blood. Um, now, what when we if go back to our, our Lord's Supper episodes, when we come to the table, we do in fact, we are nourished yeah. by faith. We, we, are, we are strengthened by Christ because we are coming in faith to Christ for, for life at the table. Um, but, but that life is not given to us in a physical carnal matter um, as, as it is in Rome but it is given by faith as we draw near to him uh, by participating in the sign and seal that signifies and seals in the, the hearts of those believing what Christ did. How, how did he give his, uh, the bread of life? By giving his flesh, that's mm. in, in John 6. Uh, and, and when we go to the table, we, we, uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ is signified and sealed in us by faith. Um, uh, because we are given life by the death and resurrection of our Savior, who gave Himself true bread on our behalf, um, and, and so, so maybe there is application to the Lord's Supper from this passage, but this is not teaching transubstantiation. And so, the other passages when Jesus said, "This is my body, this is my blood," take and eat, take and drink, uh, the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for you. If you're guilty of taking this in the wrong way, you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Um, the, there is nothing in scripture that teaches that we are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord in a literal, physical, yeah. carnal matter. Uh, because the way that we are partakers of uh, the bread of life is not a, a physical, carnal matter, but it is, a, it yeah. is by faith. I think, I think that's a great, a great sort of way to close is with the reminder that um, oftentimes kind of our misunderstandings are when or or kind of errors are when we mix the sign and the thing it signifies in a way that is unhelpful, where we sort of mush them together and then um, and then have trouble distinguishing between the two. And I think and I think that is what we see oftentimes with well with a variety of 
um, what I would consider incorrect approaches to the sacraments. But I think uh, transubsta- transubstantiation is a good example of that, where it is um, conflating what the sign represents, uh, which is um, feeding upon the body and blood of Christ in a spiritual manner um, and imposing that upon the physical elements. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that's a good place to kind of close. There would be a lot more we could address when it comes to transubstantiation in terms of uh, kind of additional um, challenges to it. Um, there's a few, like like if we got into discussing, I think um, the Luther Calvin or the Luther Zwingli debate is actually really interesting because it gets at some of the kind of very basic differences um, theologically, but we can get into that in another time. Or if people have uh, questions, feel free to send them on over. Yeah. 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 Cool. Great. Well, hopefully that's helpful. Follow up if you're Roman Catholic. Clarify if we've misrepresented you uh, or ask questions if you think we didn't do justice to to John 6. Um, Everyone else, also also ask questions. Send us your thoughts. Um, We'll be back uh, in a week or so. We're trying to figure out if we want to do another footnotes and proof text or jump right back into the catechism. Uh, But either way, we are back and and our long break is over. Uh, And and so we'll be around until we are done. This is going to be our last season until we're done discussing prayer, the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is the end of the shorter catechism. Uh, And then we'll we'll explain what we got. Um, In season one of the final, in episode one of the final season, we'll summarize what is next. Um, Because there is going to be another long pause of normal content, and then we'll be back in the Heidelberg Catechism. But we'll explain that later. Um, Yeah, have a great uh, whatever, (laughs) and we'll see you later. Catechize your kids. (laughs) Bye-bye. Goodbye.